Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double N. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 586 of the podcast and it is Friday the 12th of November 2021 as I record this. In today's show, I'm talking to Michael Baskar, who is an author and also the founder of publishing company Canelo. So he is firmly entrenched in the traditional world, but he's also a kindred spirit around new technologies. So we have a great conversation about AI tools for writing, blockchain, NFTs, and whether publishers are keeping up with technology. We also challenge each other in this conversation. So I think you'll find it interesting. So that's coming up in the interview section. In publishing news this week, well, it's it's really been a big few days, to be honest. Huge news in audio as Spotify acquires Findaway, the parent company of Findaway Voices, which is actually just one of the services under the umbrella of Findaway. So Spotify's press release says... It's Spotify's ambition to be the destination for all things audio, both for listeners and creators. The acquisition of Findaway will accelerate Spotify's presence in the audiobook space and will help us more quickly meet that ambition, says Gustav Sonderstrom, Spotify's Chief Research and Development Officer. We're excited to combine Findaway's team, best-in-class technology platform and robust audiobook catalogue with Spotify's expertise to revolutionise the audiobook space as we did with music and podcasts. We plan to build on Findaway's significant innovation in the space and we're going to supercharge its growth, bringing everything Spotify knows around personalisation and discovery while also innovating on format, delivery, creator tools and more. And uh, TechCrunch reports on it. Spotify is bringing in Findaway's full team of around 150 and then plans to build on Findaway's existing investments in the audio industry. It plans to bring expanded access to audiobooks to Spotify's 381 million monthly active users. So I have so many thoughts on this, but overall, as ever, you won't be surprised to know how excited I am. If you've been listening to the show for a while, a couple of years ago, it really is a couple of years ago now, it might be, I think it's three years ago, when I reported from Frankfurt Book Fair, when Spotify did the keynote. And that is when I personally, as a consumer, moved from Apple Music and Apple Podcasts to Spotify. And also when I went along to podcast movement in um in uh, where, where was it? Uh, Orlando or something. <laughs> Can't remember where it was. Uh, and listen to Spotify there as well. I just am totally convinced by their recommendation algorithm and their search ability for audio. And I thought then this this is the dominant company in the next few years because its discoverability is so difficult for audio. And 
I've been asking Findaway Voices, if you've listened to my interviews with Will, I've been asking about access to Spotify since then. I like I really wanted to have my audiobooks on Spotify. This is not quite how I expected it to happen, but it does seem completely in line with what I've heard in interviews with Daniel Eck, the co-founder of Spotify, about their audio ambitions. So it's not an unexpected move in many ways, but what does it mean? <laughs> now, obviously, I don't know what it means. I'm just going to tell you my thoughts and opinions based on my knowledge. Uh, but of course, things will shape out, shake out in however they, they do. I hope that it means in addition to all the other wide platforms for audio, we will also now have our audiobooks on Spotify in 2022. So it will be another platform for listeners. If you already have your audio wide through Findaway Voices, I hope it means that Spotify will just import the catalogue, although inevitably they will probably have some kind of phased approach and some kind of controls as to what books they bring through initially. But I'm pretty sure it will all happen. I would probably say that if, you know, in a year's time, you're going to see that completely mature space on Spotify and uh, if you're a Spotify user you'll know that there's a section for music a section for podcasts so presumably there'll be a section for audiobooks now if you are exclusive to ACX or you've signed an exclusive contract uh, with Audible then obviously your audiobooks won't be on Spotify I would expect that Spotify will go after exclusive content in the same way as they have done for podcasts and also the way Audible has. So I would expect an explosion of more audio content and more potential for licensing. Uh, If you remember the deal that Joe Rogan did (laughs) for exclusivity on Spotify, you might decide that's worth doing. Uh, Who knows? I mean, many authors have signed deals with Audible because it's been worth doing. So you'll have to just decide what you want to do with your books. But also Spotify has a lot of non-exclusive content. You might even be listening to this podcast on Spotify. And so I'm comfortable that I will be able to be wide on all platforms and have my audiobooks on Spotify as I do with my podcasts. I do think a lot of people who currently subscribe to Audible might (laughs) stop their subscription because they already use Spotify for everything else audio related. It was certainly the first thing I thought because, to be honest, I am an audio first consumer and everything else is on Spotify. And that is an interesting thought. Now, how will this impact authors and audiobook royalties as well as discoverability and marketing? So first of all, yes, royalties will be a micropayment for streaming in the same way as we get micropayments for library borrows and for other services uh, for audio, including places like Storytel and Scribd. And, and in the ebook world, you get pages read on KU or Kobo Plus and all the other subscription services. So we are very used to micropayments. So this is nothing new in terms of a business model, but some people are very doom and gloom about it. And they think, oh no, the sky is falling. It will decimate audiobook income in the same way as music has been decimated through streaming. But actually... <laughs> If you pay attention to the independent community of musicians, you will find there's a lot of exciting things happening in music, not least the rise of NFTs for digital originals and selling direct and multiple streams of income and all the things we talk about on this show. Plus, you cannot stop 
the rise of subscription services. There's no point trying to fight it. As a consumer, look at what you already do with unlimited subscription services. You probably at least have a TV service, Netflix or Amazon Prime or one of the others, HBO, whatever, Disney Plus. (laughs) There are so many of them. I'm sure you have one of them. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, I see it as another wide avenue for listeners to find our books, listen and become fans. Some of them will then come into our ecosystem, join up to the email list, buy books in other formats, because remember, audiobook listeners often buy in other formats and also hopefully buy products direct and other things. So the whole point of being wide is not relying on a single platform for your income in any particular format and embracing new ways to reach listeners. And yeah, so I also want you to consider if you don't use Spotify, I wanted to explain how I use it as a consumer. So I listen to music and podcasts on Spotify and I use it as an audio search engine. So essentially, uh, so lately, for example, I've been learning about NFTs and all kinds of things around NFTs and crypto and metaverse and all of that. So what I do is I open up my Spotify app on my phone, I go to the search bar under podcasts and I type in NFTs and then I hit enter and then it brings up a whole load of podcasts and also podcast episodes. So what I then do is uh, I rarely subscribe to podcasts themselves anymore. I will dip into a topic. So in this one, I will just go through and I'll select maybe five different episodes. I will um, put them on my in my feed and then I'll listen to those without having to subscribe to the whole show. I just go in, I learn about some things and then I move on. And I think that this is why Spotify is so exciting because the behaviour of audio first consumers, of which I am one, (laughs) is not the same as it might be in other areas. Although it's very similar to the way people use Amazon for content too. So I think that if you are an audio first consumer, you will increasingly use that audio search engine to find stuff to listen to. And that will include audiobooks as well as podcast episodes, hopefully, (laughs) in the future. Inevitably, there are ad opportunities for both podcasts and audiobooks. And while ads obviously have their pros and cons, it gives another angle for audio discoverability, which has been way behind ebook and print because, of course, that's already text. Um, but certainly, AI transcription has improved. And of course, AI transcription allows AI search engine optimization. So even if you don't have transcripts, even if you don't load the text, if you just load the audio, you're going to get discoverability. So I, you can hear how excited I am about this. I, I've literally been waiting for this for a couple of years. So now it's happened. I just, I'm gleeful. <laughs> I, I think it will expand my market. I, I want to say I know it will expand my market. I think it will expand my revenue options. And I've been a fan of Wide for years. So you're not hearing anything new. I, as a um, audiobook creator, I've been taking back my exclusive rights, ones I signed seven years ago. Uh, So I've been taking back those and I'm going to continue taking back exclusive deals as the rights come up. I'm also going to focus on creating a lot more audio, (laughs) getting as many anything else I can get into audio, I'm going to do that. I also think this might totally expand the market for short form audio, either for short form um, 
short stories. And as Will talked about, you don't need to have a Kindle book or any other kind of book on Amazon. Obviously, this is not related to Amazon. So you can create find away audio files without having a book to link it to. And that's one of the restrictions on ACX for audio is that you have to have a book to link it to. Whereas what find away allows is the creation of native digital content. So, for example, I could bring you as an audio book, I could bring you um, content that is not available in other ways through find away and now obviously Spotify. So I just see this exploding the potential for audio in ways that you can't necessarily see yet. Uh, One of my biggest frustrations, and I think Michael and I talk about this in the interview, my frustration is with this obsession with taking what was physical and making that digital without thinking of all the other ways we can make digital products, audio, digital NFTs, all of this stuff. It doesn't have to have a physical equivalent. It can be entirely digitally native. Uh, In a way, this podcast is digitally native and has been for what, 12 years or however long I've been doing the podcast now. Uh, Yes. So anyway... (laughs) You can tell I'm so excited. And as ever, change is the only constant and you might as well surf the change rather than drown in it. So while I've been seeing all this misery online, uh, various Facebook groups, people just, people react negatively. That's what people do. Um, I understand the fear of change, but I hope you've been if you've been listening to all the latest shows and I, I realise that my I've been doing sort of two a week now for ages, but there's way loads going on. (laughs) More to come. And in fact, talking about audio upheavals, as I was about to record this, there was another press release, another big audio move. Swedish audio streaming group Storytel has said it has agreed to buy audiobooks.com, marking its entry into the US market, as reported by Reuters. With this acquisition, Storytel extends its trajectory of expansion and profitable growth to the largest English language audio market in the world. Storytel's acquisition of audiobooks lays the foundations for the company's expansion. Right. So basically with Storytel expanding, with Findaway and Spotify, this is some big pressure on Audible. So they have been used to the being the incumbent in uh, the English language markets for quite a while. But Storytel has a lot of reach into non audible dominated markets, let's say, and now they're coming for the English language markets. And obviously Spotify has incredible penetration into everywhere in the world. (laughs) So my response is double down on creating more content. As I said, I'm writing more books, I'm creating more audio, I'm going to record more as an audiobook narrator, I'm going to expand my audio footprint as a a creator, a narrator, a writer. And (laughs) I also have an interview. I know there's a lot of change creatives, but as ever, you got it. You got to love it. (laughs) I have an interview next week with Taylan Karmis from Deep Zen about what's happening with AI narration for audiobooks and what he has to say. It's finally all starting to happen. And given that I've been going on about this for years, I feel very pleased that it is all starting to come together. And as someone obviously who has a very large audio backlist, I just I just hope it's time that it all pays off. (laughs) 
in a big way. I think 2022 is going to shift a great deal in the audiobook ecosystem. People have thought it's been stable for a while, but it's not stable anymore. This is this is big news. So yeah, as ever, I'm excited. I will keep telling you things as I learn them and as I get into the new ways of things. And uh, yeah, exciting times. So my personal update, I have uh, been recording my new course, the AI assisted author talking about futurist things. But actually, as we are now discovering, a lot of this is not futurist. And this is now and I should be launching this in the next week. The course is, it's in an awareness course. It's a snapshot in time as things change every day, but it will give you an overview of what's possible with AI from writing fiction and nonfiction with tools like PseudoWrite, which you've heard about this year, and GPT-3, as well as marketing copy and ads to editing and creating audio and video and give you tools and skills and a mindset to help you navigate the future. I am loving the preparation for this course. I'm deep diving on all these different areas and I have discovered things that I didn't know were happening or things that are way ahead of where I thought they were. So if you are at all interested in how you can use AI in your author life, but also if you use words in your day job, uh, particularly I think copywriters or anyone using text in their day job, I think you'll also find it useful. So yeah, it's an awareness course rather than a how-to course, but it will open your eyes for sure. It's aimed at non-technical people and I will be, as ever, trying to explain things in a way that will help you. So that's coming soon, hopefully next week. And I will have a discount code for the first month for my email subscribers and you lot as my podcast listeners and an even better discount for my patrons. Uh, So I will come back on that. In terms of writing, uh, Tomb of Relics is with my wonderful ARC readers. So that is just in that sort of pre-launch phase. I need to do some pictures and sort all that out this week. So I'll be ready for launch on the 1st of December. So thanks for all your emails and tweets and comments this week. Heather says about the interview with Chrissy, a great podcast, so informative and has got my mind jumping all over the place, wondering where the heck do I start? <laughs> uh, hi to Liam, who's been listening while house painting in Colorado, USA. And thanks to Michelle, who sent some glorious pictures from Mount Mitchell, the highest peak east of the Mississippi River. So you can tweet me at The Creative Pen, send me pictures of where you're listening from or email joanna at thecreativepen.com or leave a comment on the blog or on the YouTube channel. I love to hear from you as it makes this more of a conversation. And of course, you can always tweet me about my introduction as well as the interview or leave a comment, whatever. So today's show is sponsored by Pro Writing Aid, a tool that will help you improve your writing and editing process and also has a plagiarism checker. I use ProWritingAid as an important part of my writing process for every book, fiction and non-fiction. So how does it work? So you can use it as an online version or, or on your computer and integrated with Scrivener or Word or whatever you use to write. It also has an extension so you can run it with your email and other online documents. So you import or open your document and ProWritingAid runs a series of checks and reports over your manuscript or article or whatever text you're working with. It underlines things based on what needs fixing and you can click to update or just to see what the issue is. As with any editing, you don't have to make the changes. Now, there are some things I really rely on now. 
First is passive voice, which is something all of us struggle with, often in a first draft. And it's fine sometimes, but our writing can be stronger when we write in a more active way. If you overuse the words was or had, then this is super useful and something you might be interested in. I often end up rephrasing based on what it suggests or finds. Also, commas, punctuation, including when a hyphen is necessary. Uh, I certainly find hyphens. Hyphens are really interesting. Anyway, I'm not going to give you a lecture on hyphens, but I I learn something with Pro Writing Aid all the time in terms of punctuation usage. What's funny is I seem to forget it before the next time. (laughs) Then things like overuse of words. Uh, Pro Writing Aid might say, you have started three sentences in a row with this word. Uh, Or try a stronger word. And then it would, of course, suggest different words. Then, of course, all the usual things like typos, depending on the type of English, your your type of, um, you know, if you're using US versus British, for example, there are different typos. Missing or extra spaces, which can be useful, uh, as well as things like uh, sentence length, cliches, use of inclusive language and so much more. So my process is to finish my draft, then I open in Scrivener, so I use Scrivener, then I open Pro Writing Aid and run the whole book through it, and or you can just do chapters or smaller documents as well. As I fix things within Pro Writing Aid, it updates the document, which I then print out and hand edit. Then I update, run it through Pro Writing Aid again and repeat the process. I actually did that four times in the final week of Tomb of Relics. It was, uh, and every time I make an update, I run it through Pro Writing Aid again just to pick up any issues. I still use a professional human editor, but I don't want to pay someone else to fix what I can fix on my own. I prefer an editor to focus on other things. So Pro Writing Aid is an important part of my process now and I am also using the plagiarism checker as I start to use uh, tools like PseudoWrite with GPT-3 just in case. So you can check it out for free or get 25% off the premium edition at prowritingaid.com forward slash Joanna, J-O-A-N-N-A, that's prowritingaid.com forward slash Joanna, where you can also see my tutorial. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing, but my time in creating this show is sponsored by my wonderful patrons, especially all the limited edition of in between episodes. All of those are patron-supported. So thanks to new and returning patrons in the last few weeks, including Michael McCandless, Paolo Denisi and Rick CM or Seam. Thanks to everyone who's been supporting the show on Patreon for years and months. You are amazing. And those of you who've upped your pledge this month, I'm so glad you find the show useful. And all of those who have just kept supporting the show, I appreciate it so much. And you can support the show with a few dollars or pounds or euros or whatever, or a couple of coffees a month if you're feeling generous. You'll get the extra monthly Q&A audio where I answer questions from patrons. And you'll also get a coupon for my ebooks and audiobooks and courses, including the AI assisted author coming up soon. So you can support the show at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, let's get into the interview. Michael Baskar is a writer, researcher and co-founder of publishing company Canelo. His latest book is Human Frontiers, the future of big ideas in an age of small thinking. So welcome, Michael. Uh, Thank you very much for having me. Great to be here. 
I am excited to talk to you. But first off, I wanted to ask, how have you managed to combine your interests in technology and publishing? Tell us a bit more about you. Well, with some difficulty, it has to be said. And I, I often feel like I'm, I'm slightly leading two lives and endlessly trying to find little bridges between them, um, not always successfully. It is, it is a bit of a struggle. You know, I've always loved books and reading and storytelling, but I have always also been really interested in technology and how people invent new things and in what technology does to change the world. And th those have just always been things that I've been fascinated about. And at, at various times, one or the other seems to nudge ahead. And, and I always thought there, there would be a bit of a divide and, you know, one that would have to choose. And I guess the thing that brought them together for me was when I'd, I'd left university and I was doing a few jobs. And then that was just before the digital publishing wave hit in, in kind of the middle of the last decade or, well, two decades ago now, <laughs> 2005, 2006. And that, that created a few openings to work on ebooks, to work on digital publishing, to work on interesting digital experiments. And so that was the first way really that that I felt like these two things could could work together and then I've always just tried to maintain writing about both you know writing about publishing but also writing about technology working on publishing but always trying to use technology in interesting ways so it, it is an odd struggle and often they feel like very different worlds and when I'm doing my writing it feels very far away actually from being a practicing publisher so I try and find these bridges between the worlds, but yeah, it doesn't always quite cohere, even for me, to be honest. Mm. And as I was saying before we started recording, I, I'm so glad to talk to you because I feel this too. Like I feel like I lead these two lives between being the artist and then being the business person who loves technology. <laughs> And, yeah. and it's hard to find people to talk to because a lot of the bookish people seem to have some kind of disdain for technology. And yet what we basically do now as publishers is so bound up in technology. I feel like finally publishing might be embracing this stuff. What do you think? To some extent. I mean, it, it, it really when I first started to work in digital publishing. So, you know, 16 plus years ago, it, it astounded me how hostile the entire publishing industry was to technology and I, I found this a very unusual attitude because actually the publishing industry and one of the first things I noticed about it is obsessed with newness and new things you know it's always right what are the new books what are next year's books next year's writer next year's hot ideas and so on the one hand I just thought wow there can't be many industries that are just as constantly open to a sea of new products and, and new people as publishing but at the same time it had this incredibly conservative hostile attitude to any kind of meaningful change in the technological base that it worked on and so that that really did surprise me and what is amazing is that I don't think that has really changed you know what's actually happened is that somebody like Amazon or Apple have sort of solved the technological problems for publishers so they don't have to think about it particularly hard. Mm. Publishers are also quite hostile there. You know, I, I again, just going back to when I first came into publishing, people just thought Amazon was another book, sell book, book selling account. They thought, oh, well, Amazon will never be as important as Waterstones um, or the supermarkets. And 
I, I remember I always used to tell people in publishing that they'd kind of complain about Amazon. And I, I would say, well, why don't you invest the company's money in Amazon stock? And obviously they didn't do that. Uh, neither did I because I didn't really have any money. But had they done that, they would have been absolutely cleaned up on it. But of course they didn't because they didn't have a vision of what technology would do or how it could evolve and change and what the technology companies might become. It, it was just so far away from their thinking that that never occurred to them that Amazon might become this extraordinary behemoth that it has become. Mm. It's so funny you say that because I made a decision a good few years ago now not to go exclusive with Amazon and not sign yeah. with the KDP Select thing, which so many uh, indie authors do. But at the same time, I bought shares in Amazon because right. I was like, I believe in their business model. I just ethically kind of choose not to do that. But obviously that was pre-pandemic. So it's so funny that you recommended that too. But it's interesting the choices we make. But you used the word um, hostile a minute ago. And the other thing that I think has changed since you got into this is that there, there was this sort of antagonism, this hostility between the traditional publishing industry and independent authors. Authors. I mean, I, I don't know if you remember when it, we were being called the tsunami of crap back in 2010, I guess when Kindle was Indeed. really ta I, I ta taking off. Actually, <laughs> I think, unfortunately, a former uh, employer who, who I do actually have a huge amount of respect for, I think, was one of the people who, who said those exact words. <laughs> and I think in that case, he got it catastrophically wrong. And I, I just couldn't disagree with him more about that, to be honest. So, um, so tell us a bit more about what you think, like how do indies and traditional publishers and kind of hybrid, I guess, publishers fit together in, in this new world? Well, I think that the ecosystem is vast and it, it has space for so many different players. I think, well, I, I guess here I can talk about my experience at Canelo and we love working with indie authors that is great we have a lot of authors who publish a lot with us but also publish on their own I think that works absolutely fine I think you know it means you are you're both working on that author's stuff I think the author benefits from a publisher marketing but also from the editorial relationship you know you can often really see that a writer is improving from that that repeated working with professional editors but then also that can go back into their own work so we, we love it. We just think it's a great model. You know, there is room for everyone. I, I also think that traditional publishers, they are somewhat focused on, on the sort of big genre or, or kind of book that's very fashionable. And indie authors can follow their, their noses a bit and go into things that the big publishers have forgotten about or overlooked. So I think that's hugely valuable. And at Canelo, we love that. We love it when we realise that something we really enjoy is just being completely ignored by the big houses. And often that's something that we, we can then work on with indie authors who are in the space. So for me, it's all just one ecosystem and there's place for everyone. The, the big publishers, they, they do things no one else can. They can back things and make things happen. But for me, there shouldn't be any antagonism. I think any publisher that is looking down their nose at anyone writing is, is just being an idiot. And I think the whole debate is really over. You know, I think it's just an established fact that there is room for everyone, that there is great work coming from every corner. And that that's just the reality. And everyone needs to get on with that and acknowledge it.
I'm so glad you feel that way because I always thought it was a bit of a waste of time to have any kind of antagonism in a world of books because we should be defending our, our area against gaming and TV and all these other things that take people's attention rather than against other people of the book, you know, one might say. So yeah, I'm so glad to hear you say that. And I hope that, I feel that there's still a lot of misinformation and sort of harking back to the in quotation marks good old days and that perhaps people don't realize that all authors don't get seven figure deals and and that kind of thing I I still think the expectations are stuck in the 90s (laughs) for some reason (laughs) but I hope that slowly we're all changing that expectation I, I well I hope so and like one thing I would say that that I've definitely seen just become ever more extreme in the traditional publishing world and it's not something that at Canelo we get involved with we we have a different model but it's just that the polarization between the the big bets of a publishing house and then everyone else is massive it's mm. you know some people are getting paid astronomical amounts of money but they are small in number and most people aren't most books aren't really working that well so the traditional publishing world is it is not just this gold mine or this great place it's actually just this very divided place between people who have got lucky or you know are already famous in many cases and everyone else And again, that's just the reality of it that I think, you know, everyone thinking about the book world needs to know that it is this incredibly unequal place. Yeah, absolutely. And look, to be honest, I think it's the same in the indie space. You know, there are authors making seven figures, multi seven figures as independent authors, but that's not the majority. The, The majority of people might make Uh, you know a few hundred a few thousand that someone like me who's got 30 plus books is making good money but I think it's the same people see the outliers the ones in the news uh the JK Rowling (laughs) or whatever but I, I think you know you're obviously a publisher too we make money from years of creative work And I think that's what I encourage authors to think is we love writing. We love books. This is a career. I've been doing this since 2006. I started writing. So 15 years in, I make a good living and I'm happy. You know, of course, I'd love to break out. Wouldn't we all? (laughs) But I think that's the reality for for all of us in publishing. Yeah, I think you, you really capture there is how much of a long game it is and also how much of a and, and something that I say this to us all the time, how much of a linear relationship there is between your output and your income. You know, if you're going to write one book every two or three years and expect that to really deliver a, a meaningful income, you will really struggle. Whereas people who are just nose to the grindstone producing two or three books a year, year in, year out, over a decade, then that can really, really start to add up. And I think possibly a lot of people just underestimate that just just how much of it is about hanging in there being very consistent working very hard and then it starts paying off there is this idea and again this is perhaps more the model of a traditional publisher and it's this this hit driven idea that you're going to sit there work on a masterpiece and it's just going to become some major bestseller and it's kind of like scoring a mega goal out of nowhere and that's it But actually, what it's more about is is a long slog. It is more like a series of marathons than just scoring one mega goal. And I think that that's an important message that publishers forget and writers forget. But, But that's just the nature of the beast. Mm. Well, thinking long term, everyone on my show hears that a lot. 
<laughs> but let's get into the book because uh, we've talked really about the past and the present, but let's move into the future. Uh, so yeah. this, the second half of your book, Human Frontiers, goes into how big ideas might emerge tomorrow. So you do mention GPT-3, which I've done a number of shows on, so we don't need to get into technological detail. But you say, uh, quoting from your book, it, you called it a powerful real world application already throwing up startling ideas. And um, I've been playing with PseudoWrite, which is one of the tools that's been built on top of GPT-3. There's a lot of them, uh, essentially natural language generation tool. And I have included a statement of AI usage in the back of my uh, next novel, which is coming out soon, Tomb of Relics. So I, I wanted to ask about your opinion as a publisher for writers who are already using tools like GPT-3 and might not be admitting it as well. So what are your thoughts on uh, natural language generation tools? So lots really. And I'm so glad, Joanna, that somebody in the writing world is thinking and talking about GPT-3 because, I, and, you know, in general, large language models and natural language programming, because as far as I can see, I think your your podcast is probably the, the absolute center of it. No one else is talking about this. And it's been something that I've been thinking about for quite a while because I did a, a kind of consultancy gig for two years as a writer in residence at DeepMind, which is a subsidiary of Alphabet. And for those who don't know, is, is probably the world's leading AI lab, perhaps along with OpenAI, who, who produced GPT-3. So for two years, I really had uh, amazing insight into what was going on in AI, what was coming, why it's so important, how far advanced it could be, and, and just thinking through all of the issues around it, and, and in particular, the social and ethical issues. So just, just to come on to what GPT-3, I, I think it's astounding that it's not being really thought of because it is a true existential level event for publishers. But publishers, as I mentioned, they, they've not tried playing with GPT-3 and, and other large language models. So they have no real conception of how powerful they are. They have no real idea of the level of textual interest that they can generate. And, and of course, the thing about GPT-3 is that's not the last word. You know, no. you've got to imagine <laughs> what, what's it going to be like in 10 years mm. when it's, it's GPT-15 or, you know, you're talking about models with trillions or trillions of parameters. So I just think it's this extraordinary existential event that nobody is, is really thinking about. And it, it really is the case that these businesses that are worth billions of pounds probably should start doing that. So that that's one thing. Um. As for your point about a, a statement, I think that is an, an absolutely brilliant and must-do suggestion. And I think then there almost needs to be some industry-wide pact and policy on this that basically agrees to state what is AI-generated and what isn't. Of course, this is a massive societal problem because the potential for misinformation, and not just in natural language, but in image generation and video generation, which is now fast coming up there is so huge so we need to develop all of these mechanisms and norms about what's true and and I think it'd be really interesting to see if the book world could lead on this because actually it's quite a contained use of AI hmm. it, it's not like just putting out stuff on social media you know it, an author and a publisher one or the other or, or both 
effectively do control what goes in the text. So it'd be a very good litmus case for establishing a benchmark, right, this is generated by AI, this is generated by AI. And if we could do that well, it might become something that is, is more widely adopted by news organizations, say, or governments. So I think it's a really exciting idea. It's something I'd love to be pushing and to get more involved with to like help create this standard. But the difficulty is just going to be a matter of time. And am I or is anyone up for spending three years just explaining just loads of stuff to publishers who don't really want to know <laughs> um <laughs> yeah i mean but... and yeah i i agree with you on that i've been involved with the world's intellectual property organization we yeah. put together a thing for the british government on ai and copyright and basically my feeling a year later is the genie is out the box already or the horse has bolted or whatever you want to say and as you as you mentioned if it's going to take three years to explain this like it did for ebooks <laughs> for example yeah. then it's already too late i always already know people who are generating work and publishing it traditionally published authors as well as independent authors who are not stating AI usage there's no legal requirement you can use a plagiarism yeah. checker and it's not plagiarized actually that's what's no, of course. kind it's, of it's brand scary new. yeah yeah it's, it's, it's completely newly generated yeah, um, exactly. So I, I feel like what what I'm trying to push for and what the Alliance of Independent Authors is pushing for is a ethical use of AI. And a st and not also, I'm not um, ashamed of using AI tools, I think. Uh, so I've stated in the back of Tomb of Relics, I use Google, I use Amazon, I use Amazon Auto Ads, I use ProWritingAid, and I use PseudoWrite. So all of these yeah. things are AI tools. It's not just the generation. Plus, I I use it more as an extended thesaurus at this point but I'm yeah. very keen to push what it's what is possible and have you actually tried it I have yes I have mm. and I tried an early version of GPT-2 as well um mm. which already had astounded me and that that wasn't made publicly available at first because OpenAI made a big thing about how how worried they were about it so no I have tried GPT-3 and I was I was stunned by mm. what it could do and then I haven't used it in the past couple of months because you know I just didn't have access to anything but I'll, I'll follow up on some of the things so I, I'm amazed by it I'm like you is I, I would say it's inevitable that people are going to use it and that's why I think your approach is incredibly sensible it's not about not using um, tools it's just about for grounding when you have and are using them and I mm. think that's such an important distinction. And look, John, I, I think we should start some kind of campaign about this because it's genuinely important. And I can honestly say it's just not on the radar of a lot of the big companies at all. Yeah. And it, it really needs to be. And, it, and the fact that their authors might already be using it, that should set alarm bells ringing. Well, you'd think so. And it, it to me is, again, what I don't want, you mentioned alarm bells. What I don't want is the sort of fear 
that we have like to me what what has changed in my own reaction to all of this is I have gone from fear of AI taking my job to oh this is absolutely wonderful I love this I'm giggling away you know when I'm using Pseudolite and I went uh, last year again a year ago I wanted to train a language model with my own output you know with my own JF pen books and then write more in my voice and I've completely changed my mind now I don't want to write with myself I want to write with a mind in inverted commas that is not like me and the stuff that comes out now between me and the AI and of course the the difficulty is the prompt engineering that's that's the the thing is and it's almost this childish wonder and uh, like seriously I'm sitting there giggling and that is not normal behavior for me during my writing time (laughs) yeah well I mean in, in many ways this is one of the arguments that I'm making in Human Frontiers and the, the book is saying that in many ways we're having problems coming up with major new ideas and there's a lot of evidence across the board in society that we are despite what a lot of people think actually really bad at big revolutionary ideas but i am so excited by the potential of ai to to reignite a, a new generation of ideas and this is definitely the track record of ai is is exactly as you say so one thing that DeepMind did very famously was it was the first to create an AI program that beat a human being at the game of Go, which is exponentially more complex than chess. So nobody thought that AI would be able to do it. But what was really, really interesting about what happened to the game Go after DeepMind's work is it's totally changed. And all the best players now are playing Go in, a, in an incredibly different, much more freewheeling and much more creative way than they used to. And it's almost like playing with and against the AIs has just opened up this whole new style that is incredibly exciting that in thousands of years, people had never really thought to play like this, but now they do. And for me, that's that's the promise of AI is that across the board, it's a new way of seeing. It's, it's like a new tool that we can use for creative ends. And so, yeah, I, I think it is really, really exciting. And the way you're talking about it is exactly how I'd hope it would be used. Oh, good. Well, I think playing with is what I'm trying to emphasize as well, this sort of um, excitement at creativity instead of the first half of your book, you talk about stagnation. And it's actually quite funny because probably about 18 months ago, I was really thinking about getting out of the publishing space because I was just like, I am so frustrated with how stagnated this whole thing is. And then all these things started to happen and I was like wow okay things are now changing again I feel like it's sort of 2008 all over again in terms of what's happening so let's let's come to another thing that I'm excited about which is the AI narration of audiobooks and speech synthesis and all of these things so this is an opportunity to expand audio content into more languages more dialects allow listeners more choice and uh, I've actually just this afternoon been proofing my first audiobooks with deep zen and uh and i've just been i'm blown away and google is just bringing their ai narration out of beta so what are your thoughts on ai narration because again the fear level in the publishing industry seems and protectionism seems to be very high i i think it's just inevitably coming and it's one of those things where yeah voice synthesis is is getting really really good again it was something that DeepMind has worked on in in relation to Android and there's a lot that's published about that and it is I I just can't see how it can be stopped and do I think that will mean that there'll be no more 
human narrated audiobooks no because you know people really like certain narrators i think there probably is something that that's random about it that that is good of course there are celebrity narrators but do i think ai enabled narration is coming of course because it does just open the barriers so it, it, it's futile to worry about it or to resist it in, in my view because it's going to happen because it's just so useful and the bottleneck on on paying for narration is massive so as far as i'm concerned it's, it's just quite a simple thing it, it is going to happen there will be a lot of resistance and that resistance will just take the form of people not letting it happen to their books but eventually just that will change you know in, in 10 years time it'll just seem completely unremarkable yeah, I agree. And I feel like there needs to be a stratification of uh, rights for audio. At the moment, a lot of uh, publishers seem to just take audiobook rights, which mm. uh, to me is too broad. Like I think now, I mean, uh, what I'm doing is I'm actually creating some of my audiobooks that I've, I've narrated myself as a human and then getting them done in a male voice by the AI. So it's the same work, but it's done. One is AI, one is human. And I feel like yeah, and because this is what I want. You know, I don't know if you get this. Um, I listen to loads of audiobooks, loads of business books out of America, and they are all narrated by American men. Whereas I would like to listen to them in the voice of a British female, for example, or yeah. maybe someone would like to listen in, um, I don't know, a, a Birmingham accent or whatever. Yeah. So yeah. this is what I feel we're missing. So if there was a stratification of rights, what you'd have is uh, a human narrated uh, single voice audio, human narrated multicast, for example, and then AI multi-voice rights or whatever. So that, that's how I would like to see that happen. I think that would be fascinating. I think you're going to be pushing against a harder obstacle there because one thing I have learned is that it, it's eventually these kind of changes come through, but changing the structure of rights that is that is way harder than anything because you know then you're getting to the the bedrock of the industry and i i think that will just be more challenging so what i think will happen is just that slowly yeah the the increased functionality will seem better and better and people will just enable it but i think it'll be difficult to start splitting out the rights we'll see if literary agents for example think that this might be beneficial to them and their clients then you might see it start to happen but I would imagine any publisher will just furiously resist this you know this is not it's not a great situation for publishers because once again they don't own the technology so they're not likely to be massive net winners from it you know but publishers basically think well once again we don't own the technology or but we're not technology companies as long as we can cream a bit of extra money out of it well maybe we'll go along with it and so eventually they might get to that point but mm. I think the last thing to change will be the rights everything yes. else will change first and then eventually well, there might be changes well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because all the AI stuff I've been kind of delving into the last 18 months, all of and the AI copyright stuff is that legislation happens years 
after people are already doing these things. So the right stuff will come again years after that, probably. So I think this is, but that's what's weird as well, because there's a lot of things that's going on, like the use of GPT-3 in these natural language generation tools. There's nothing in a, a publisher contract necessarily that stops that happening. And listening to AI and copyright webinars, it's not it's not plagiarism it's not um, infringing copyright so there's nothing wrong with it and yet you hear pushback for whatever reasons based on fear and uncertainty and and all that so it's interesting that you say the rights will be the last to happen <laughs> it's just yeah. yeah I completely agree with you so well the other thing that's really happened in 2021 is the explosion of nfts and of course it was about three years ago four years ago when we first talked about blockchain at london book fair and uh, there's a few incumbents in the blockchain for book space but it's not been accepted in any way and then this year nfts have gone nuts and in the last few weeks really we've had book vaults and Creatokia from bookwire who are a german company and uh, they're going to come on the podcast podcast as well soon so what do you think is going to happen with um, blockchain and nfts do you think publishers are just way 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 too far away from this or uh, have you heard of interest in this area being honest i have not heard any interest around nfts at all in the the publishing space so no i would say publishers are definitely behind the curve on it I'm basically agnostic on whether NFTs will ever be a thing for book publishers. Um, In some ways, I hope they don't, because my natural instinct is for, you know, the beautiful thing about digital technology is, is for its ability to kind of spread. And I think NFTs might just be putting, I mean, they're not stopping spread. So I guess that that doesn't. I'm, I'm just agnostic on the whole question of NFTs. I slightly think that in 20 years time, NFTs are going to be huge, but nobody's really going to be bothering to buy art or trainers as NFTs. What, what they're going to be is it's going to be a record of guarantee. So it, it will be, you will assert that you've used AI here, here and here in one of your books and that would be somehow guaranteed by some kind of nft or at least or, or some kind of blockchain mechanism so i think there are potentially really interesting uses of it but i'm agnostic on the more kind of i would say commercial or obviously commercial uses that's very that's, interesting that's where i am right because i think this could this to me is very exciting because if NFTs are essentially digital assets that allow a smart contract to bring, when you resell, on resale of the NFT, the original creator can have an additional royalty, say another 10%, and that carries on for the life of copyright. We have never had digital resale before. And this presents an entirely new business model. We could also, oh, there are so many potential business models around NFTs, like if people can get over the fact that they're not just a JPEG or whatever. And to me, that resale of digital special editions could be absolutely huge. And yeah, yeah, I mean, because we we haven't had that before, right? Uh, We haven't had that. And, you know, there's, yeah, there's just no market because it doesn't exist. Um, 
I would love to see some experimentation there. I think the difficult thing will be working out a, a pricing structure that actually works. But, you know, the only way that we'll be able to figure out a possibility would be to try it. So as I say, I mean, is it going to work? I don't know. But my my kind of default would be to say it's got to be worth trying. And I think already that that is a more interesting business model than, you know, just selling a, an NFT of cover artwork, say. The big question is about what elements of a special edition are going to be sufficiently value add that then it is something that is very much worth paying for both initially and then down the line. But that's the kind of creative task that I think we should be doing. And I used to do a lot more of that kind of creative thinking. At Canelo, we are just pretty much focused on publishing books. And that's basically because we're a startup, we need to to publish books to survive. But I think we do have a a hankering to get back to some of what we were doing 5, 10, 15 years ago, which, which was just thinking in a very open way, well, what can all of this be? How can we reinvent the world of books for a digital age? So perhaps this would be the experiment. I guess one one thing I have learned though, Joanna, is is that readers are skeptical of things that introduce more complexity. And so the key on this is to somehow make it so seamless that it, it has not complexified either the product or the process of buying it. Because if it does either of those things, I think then it starts to really, really struggle. So those, those for me are the things to think about. How, how is it as simple as, a, as buying or reading a book? Hmm. Well, it clearly isn't right now. Again, like I said, I think it's 2008 in the world of ebooks. If you remember, it, I was living in Australia. I think Australia. it's more like 1998 in the world. Of <laughs> well, maybe it I is. I think it's that, that early and, and that undeveloped. Right. Well, I I would say it's a little bit further in that people actually can transact online. But I agree it's really early. But I think what's interesting is the this is a fan based model in the same way that physical special editions are a fan based model most readers do not buy special editions uh, so the example i give is the brandon sanderson 6.7 million dollars uh, uh special edition of the way of kings which he right. sold to traditional publishing years ago and then did a kickstarter for and i think that's what nfts represent it's a fan based product so i i'm planning on doing one for tomb of relics because it's the first book i've ever used ai with so what i'm i did while i was writing it is i recorded a video of me writing with ai so this is the first book i've done with it it's got a video of me writing with it and it's going to have an image of my handwritten edits so it's it's actually a pretty original product and uh that i'm still looking at what platform to put it on but um well, that was going to be my question is where where will it go up and you know there are now a lot of these nft marketplaces and, mm. and services that are doing it so well as um, we, we're recording this at the end of october 2021 and as i said in the next couple of weeks i'm talking to Creatokia for bookwire and obviously there's bookchain publica book vaults but also there's just places yeah. like open seas and you can use different blockchains so but i think the point is as you said this is such early days but i was one of the first people in australia to get a kindle i was one of the first international authors to publish on the kindle one of the first to do acx audio and so i feel like i ha- kind of have to do this to prove some kind of point yeah <laughs> 
I mean, I'm fascinated by the um, psychology of NFT purchases. So there's a website that's been backed by, and it's based in London, and it's been backed by some of the biggest VCs in the world. And it sells uh, NFTs of kind of graphic trainers. So you own an NFT of these trainers, but it's selling NFTs a lot of, uh, very often for tens of thousands and, and fairly often for hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I'm just really curious about the kind of economics and psychology of it. Are people investing as kind of speculative plays or are they buying things as a kind of a collector would buy things? And, and that's what I'm interested in because um, I don't know and I don't understand it. Um, <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot to know, but I think it's interesting. I mean, you have another book called Curation, The Power of Selection yeah. in a World of Excess. And I feel like uh, a lot of this comes down to there's a world of digital excess. These are digital, special, original assets. Now, of course, the, the world of publishing is not the world of multi-million dollar trainers. So that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is special edition ebooks that have resale mm -hmm. potential. So yeah, anyway, I think the point is there's whole lot to explore here. And as again, as we record this toward the end of 2021, what we're probably saying is it's going to take at least five years. But what you're saying is 10 years for it to become I, I, mainstream. I guess my, my, my question though is, do people who will buy your your NFT, do you have any sense or do you mind whether they're buying it as a speculative asset or they're buying it as a kind of fan buy-in thing? Like, of course, I, I don't mind. I don't mind at all. I have one. Yeah. I have a goal this year, which is to earn Ethereum because yeah. I want to, you know, I think earning cryptocurrency is going to be an important thing yeah uh, and i think what, you know, we can't get into digital currencies here but, but you know the financial system is is changing there'll be going to be digital yeah. central bank currencies all of this so i guess what at the moment i'm just playing with things and look to be honest i have enough techie people in my audience who may well take a punt on me actually achieving something in this digital space over the next decade so yeah. I don't mind either way. I and also, look, if it falls flat on its face, I don't mind. <laughs> yeah, that that's you fine. Know. I think you have to take that attitude. I mean, I, I I just commend your adventurous spirit, and I do think it says something about the business and creative landscape that that you're the author who's doing this. That no publisher is is even considering it. Would would barely know what Ethereum is and have a clue at, at what what it could mean in its most developed forms for the the world and the future of finance etc so that's fascinating and yeah I, I i will follow very closely because i think it's seriously <laughs> interesting. oh well i'll let you know well then i just i also want to ask your opinion on the rights issue and in fact i i actually put out an article today about intellectual property rights and i found an article back in 2008 which is when the publishers were sending around addendums to contracts, basically asking for digital rights or I was doing a lot rights. of that at the time. That was probably me. <laughs> so, do you, so do you remember? Well, it was the phrase digital rights. Is that what people signed an addendum for? Well, I think that's almost certainly what we would have asked for. If you were a switched on literary agent or author, you would have come back and said, no, electronic ebook rights. Here's what I mean by an ebook. Mm. So I, I'm sure that publishers in the first place would have tried for the broadest possible definition 
in many cases that will have got through and in many cases it will have been whittled back to something much more specific. Because mm, this is what I'm now concerned. This kind of struck me on another 3am moment the other day, which is if NFTs and blockchain is a reinvention of the way we do digital, which it could well be, and NFTs essentially, you could argue are an ebook, well, they're certainly a digital product, yeah. then and resale of these digital products becomes a thing. There's nothing in contracts about resale percentage to authors. So yeah. I, I think that the, that again, we're going to have to go through another round of addendums within well, the next I think few there, years. There, there would be something about on the resale because digital rights and ebook rights tends to be on a net receipts basis. So if a publisher is earning money from resales, the author will still earn a percentage of that that's come to the publisher. So they should be covered to some extent, but what the split should be is would be then a very different question or, or, you know it might be than, argued that it needs re-examining or it need, or I guess more to your point it might be that there's this growing it's a bit like all the authors who've signed away audiobook rights whose books are not available in audio I feel like the same will happen with NFTs in that most authors won't be able to do them because they don't have digital special edition rights in the same yeah. way that Brandon Sanderson actually excluded special editions from his traditional publishing deal, which meant yeah. he could do his own Kickstarter. I feel like, again, rights have to be more clearly defined in the digital space. So it was just something I was thinking about. It was like, oh my goodness, this is interesting. <laughs> yeah. And like any, any author or literary agent with, with say, if you're, you know, passing over audiobook rights, you should, and you know, I, I'm saying this as a publisher, and we do like to get all the rights we can, but you know, Canelo, we like to be fair, and that's very important that we're very fair and transparent. You know, I think pretty much we would always have some clause, or, or authors and agents would insist on having a clause that says, well, if you don't produce an audiobook in X time, the author can revert that right. And that should be something that people listening should always be, be getting if they are looking at contracts. If a publisher isn't going to exercise a right, then it shouldn't necessarily be able to have that in perpetuity. So mm. um, th there could be some major battles on the horizon about this because, yes, is, is an NFT an ebook or is a digital product? What should be the definition of it? Where should it sit? What should the splits be? Um, there is just absolutely no precedent here. So... What it took was, you know, with, with ebooks, there was this thing where it became 25 net receipts. You know, at Canelo, we have double that and upwards as our basic digital royalty. But if you go to a traditional publisher, that's your royalty. And I think it was when somebody like, I think it was Random House, wasn't PRH at that time, just came out and said, we're going to do 25% off the, off, across the board. And they said that publicly. And then every other publisher just went, yep, we'll do that. And then bam, mm. it was there. And I wonder if we'll see something like that. I suspect not, because I think this is going to be happening on a much more bespoke basis. I think it's a very different market. It is going to be smaller in terms of number of actors, but potentially more lucrative in terms of the margin that you're making. It'll be fascinating to watch it happen. Yeah. My guess is, <laughs> is the standard will be set because probably Penguin Random House will eventually have to come out with a policy on it. That will be public and then all the other publishers will follow. But it will mm. be a massive fight. 
Yes. Well, and I even, <laughs> it's funny you mentioned consulting because I used to be an IT consultant and uh, I even thought about, I even set up a website and everything for doing consulting around AI, Web3, uh, blockchain and this kind of futurist stuff. And then I just pulled it down again and went, oh God, it's like you said, do I want to spend years trying to, to drag people kicking and screaming <laughs> into yeah. the future in the same yeah. uh, wouldn't I rather just get on and do it and so yeah at the moment I feel like I just want to get on and do it but that's why it's so good to talk to you because I feel like you're you, you mentioned the word bridge like I feel like we need more bridges between where we are now and the future in the same way that we needed to bridge that digital gap a decade ago we're kind of to me the next decade is going to be another reinvention possibly even bigger than the one we just did i i think that i think that's true both in terms of wider society and technology and probably in terms of books but i i actually think the main difference is that a decade ago publishers were employing people like me to think about this and now they have just completely rode back and they just think right well we weathered that storm and we survived pretty much intact. We now do these things called ebooks. We do audiobook downloads, but that's it. We never need to worry again. We're just going to stick with the groove. So in some ways, I think the, the book publishing world is in a much more closed-minded space than it was even 10 years ago when they had started to, to really engage with it. And they had, they'd started to engage with it because they'd seen what had happened to music and they'd seen the revenues just fall off a cliff and they were terrified by that. This time around with, with blockchain, with AI, they are just so out of the game that I, I kind of even struggle to think how they're going to do it. The other thing that I think is, is that they, they've really miscalculated on is that if you want to get people to put you in an advanced position in, in blockchain or AI, it's extremely expensive and difficult. And there's already a war for those people amongst the tech companies um, mm. who, you know, th there's just simply no way that publishers can get back in the game. And so they're just never going to be able to catch up on this front. They're always going to be well behind the technological curve. They're not going to be setting the agenda for anything that's happening. And so they're going to be at a kind of perpetual disadvantage. I think that's probably quite an exciting thing for authors who are in your position where you can be more nimble, you can set the pace, you can actually do a lot more that is a lot a lot more innovative, a lot better. So that might be the ultimate shift that happens is it's just the people who are really pushing the boundaries can get ahead of where any publisher is at and thus potentially clean up there. Excellent. <laughs> that sounds like but a it's plan. going to be hard. It's going to be hard, you know, <laughs> but for those reasons that I said, it, unless you unless you can make it all simple, it's difficult. But the AI stuff is is about writing and, and need not impact the consumer. It's mm. just about a it's, it's as much a creative revolution as anything else. So. Indeed. Well, there are so many exciting things going on right now. It just that's why I enjoyed your book. I, I thought, you know, that the future of big ideas is is how I feel at the moment. I, I am just so excited about the next decade. And it feels like you are, too, in a slightly less exuberant way than me. <laughs> I am. I am excited. I'm massively excited. I, I do think there are a lot of challenges. And, you know, I think there are a lot of fears around this that can't be dismissed. Like, I think some people just have a natural fear of something like, you know, GPT-3 or, or even projecting forward GPT-15. It, it really worries them at a deep level. 
And I do get that. And I think it's important that people who are on the frontiers of this do acknowledge this is a profound change in what is possible. And that is unsettling. And it does come with risks. And it does come with the risk of losing something as well. And so I always think everyone involved has a kind of responsibility to make it work. And that's not necessarily going to be straightforward. Yeah, I'm excited that there are such creative people as as you and, and I'm sure lots of your listeners. I'm disappointed that traditional publishers aren't here as well. Right. So where can people find you and your books and everything you do online? Well, look me up on Twitter, Michael Basker. Uh, on, I'm on Twitter all the time and you can find my books on Amazon or in all good bookshops. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your time, Michael. That was great. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So I hope you enjoyed the interview with Michael today and that it gave you some insight into how publishing and technology overlap in some ways, but also how as indie authors, we have the freedom to be nimble, move fast and try new things without asking permission. This is why I go on so much about contracts and all of that. I want you to be able to have the choice in the years ahead as things change, technology changes, platforms change. If you own and control and selectively license your intellectual property rights, you will be able to do whatever happens. And that is truly, truly exciting. So I have another in-between episode coming this Friday, but it's not tech focused. I'm sure you'll be glad to have a bit of a rest from the tech. It is on Can Stories Save the World? Writing for the Environment with Denise Baden. Since the COP26 conference just happened on climate change, it's very topical to talk about this and uh, how, you know how we can use stories rather than lecturing and figures and facts. Uh, stories help change people's mind and behaviour in a much better way. Uh, plus, there is a Green Stories Prize with a deadline of 30th of December sponsored by Orna Ross from the Alliance of Independent Authors. So I wanted you to hear about that if you have manuscripts on green topics or uh, we also talk about a short story prize for next year all those things so hopefully you'll be interested in that and next Monday I'm talking to Alan Baxter about how short stories can be the basis to an award-winning long-term author career and Alan and I have been online friends for a decade now and he's been on the show a few times Uh, he's a martial artist but he's also he's written a lot of short stories I find his career very encouraging he's hybrid he's published in all different ways and he just keeps winning awards (laughs) which I know many of us would like to do so we talk about that amongst other things so happy writing and I'll see you next time thanks for listening today I hope you found it helpful you might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast you can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint if you'd like to connect you can tweet me at the creative pen or find me on facebook at the creative pen see you next time <laughs>